0: Welcome to The Momologist, a mom's best resource, where we take mama knows best to a whole new level. The Momologist podcast uncovers information and advice straight from the experts. From innovative theories to controversial claims, and even the familiar hot topics, we're here to put a magnifying glass on it all by interviewing industry leaders and specialists in their field. I'm your host, Sasha Culpepper, a parenting podcaster and digital creator mommy of two little boys and a complete mom nerd for more information about the momologist visit our website at the official momologist.com hello momologists and welcome to the last episode of season one what an amazing first season if you've been listening and learning along with me on this journey Thank you for your support. I've learned so much in speaking to our experts and I hope you have as our listeners as well. This has really been an exciting and insightful journey thus far and I have to admit that it has felt a little self-serving at times. I've gotten the chance and the opportunity to meet and chat with top professionals and leaders in various fields some of which I've followed for years. Being able to virtually meet exchange thoughts, and glean information and advice towards raising and taking care of our families with these phenomenal guests has been nothing short of amazing. I certainly had lots of mom nerd moments along the way, and I love it. That's when you really know you're tapping into valuable information. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome. I'm your host, Sasha Culpepper. I encourage you to check out our trailer linked in the show notes for more information on the podcast. However, in a nutshell, the momologist is for moms deemed the overthinkers who want to embrace their inquisitive nature, learn straight from experts, and receive actionable steps towards taking care of their families. If this resonates with you, then you're in the right place. We've been so fortunate to have great episodes highlighted by superb guests. To conclude our first season, we have compiled some of the best clips from each of our episodes. Now, without further ado, let's jump right in. Okay, so Emma, let's start with what hormones are and how they play an integral part in our body. And then maybe we can jump into what Hormone disrupting chemicals are, and you know why that's such a huge issue
1: in um, pregnancy. So hormones are fascinating, and the more that I learn about them, the more intrigued I get. Um, I'm not a medical professional, so I won't pretend to be able to fix hormone issues. But when it comes to toxins. The important thing to know about hormones is that they are very small molecules in our body. They are made by glands throughout our endocrine system, and they are responsible for controlling just about every function in the body. A lot of us are probably aware that hormones are responsible for reproductive health. They also are required for metabolism. They can affect our mood uh brain development in children just about everything is controlled by hormones and, and thyroid issues
0: too I believe. thyroid
1: issues yeah. so energy um it's it they're very broad reaching and so when our hormones are off balance, which can mean we don't have enough of them or we have too much, this is where symptoms can arise. Hormones act like a lock and key when they bind to cells that they are supposed to connect with so that they can cause downstream effects. And so with hormone disrupting chemicals, they do a great job at either mimicking hormone disrupt or mimicking our natural hormones Mm -hmm. or impacting the way that they interact with our cells so they can Um, block the receptor sites. They can change the way that those receptor sites are made so that our hormones don't fit as well in them. They can also impact how our hormones are metabolized. So take estrogen, for example. Mm -hmm. Once estrogen does its job, causes whatever it's going to do at a a certain cell, it needs to be excreted from the body because too much estrogen, like I said, there's a balance, too much estrogen can be a bit toxic for our bodies as well. And so our liver is largely responsible for estrogen metabolism. Hormone disruptors can also disrupt that process. So they act in a few different ways, ultimately causing our hormones to become off balance and therefore the things that our hormones are supposed to be triggering may not happen or they might be triggered in excess. And so when it comes to preconception or prenatal health, lowering hormone disrupting chemicals not only supports you and your body, but will also help support baby as well. Um, When it comes to fetal development Hormones are very important in how their bodies are growing, as well as in through um, early childhood all the way up to adolescence. And so, reducing your exposure early uh, is, you know, the benefits are very broad because it's for you as well as future generations. So, that's kind of how hormone disrupting chemicals work and why they're important.
0: And what are some of the top hormone disrupting chemicals or the most known hormone disrupting chemicals out there.
1: So there are close to 800 uh, known or suspected hormone disruptors or endocrine disrupting chemicals. Only a small fraction of them have been investigated for safety. So that is a bit of a problem. So the ones that we (laughs) know or are fairly certain cause hormone disruption are things like phthalates, um, bisphenols, BPA is the big one, but there's mm-hmm. also um, others. Um, some pesticides, PFAS chemicals. Um, those are the ones that a lot of people are probably aware of, and we'll get into more about where they're found in our homes. But then there's also things that are found in our environment that you might not find on ingredient labels, for example, like dioxins, which contaminate our water, um, perchlorate lead and heavy metals, um, PCBs, and certain flame retardants that have um, polluted our soil and air and water from use over decades. Um, And so this is where kind of, there's so many different hormone disrupting chemicals out there already. So being able to focus even just on the hormone disrupting chemical kind of class yes, it helps you narrow down what you're going to reduce when you're preconception or pregnant um, but there are lots of different kind of avenues to focus on. So I think it's important to recognize that they are everywhere um that we can't avoid all of them and that the some of them like phthalates, the good news is that they can be removed from the body quite quickly. And so the more that we can, reduce what's going in it does show an impact that they aren't building up in our bodies so there's there are definitely steps that you can take to um yeah to reduce your exposure and reduce your body burden and
0: you've given us some great um pointers on how we can avoid uh these hot car dangers and um i did want to ask one question about the hot cars act actually um is this the first time that you guys have introduced the Hot Cars Act? No. Or is it the reintroduction?
2: Um, th- this is not the first time. We we reintroduced it in May of, of 2021, um, but it wasn't the prior session, made it through the House. But if we can remember um, the, the last couple of years, nothing with regards to car safety was moving forward. So mm. that's why we're so hopeful it will go this year. But the other thing I did want to make sure I shared with everybody is there are just some you know, very simple things you can do to make sure that this doesn't happen to you. And um, number one is a program we call Look Before You Lock. And it doesn't cost a penny. But when you arrive at your location, if you can just get in the habit of always, when you get out of your car, open the back door. It takes three seconds, maybe less, just to make sure nothing's been left behind there. I mean, sometimes you might find a school lunch, who knows? But um, if you can just get into that habit, look before you lock. And a way to help you get into that habit is put something there that you'll need as you start your day. I mean, a great idea to keep you safe is put your cell phone back there or put your employee badge or your handbag or your lunch or your gym bag, you know, something that you know that you won't get very far into your day without needing. So we do that. And, and another thing you can do is always keep, let's say, a stuffed animal in your child's car seat. So mm-hmm. in your mind, you know there's always a car something in that car seat. So if it isn't the stuffed animal, it's the baby. And when the baby's in there, put the stuffed animal up front. So you because we're Q dependent as adults, so we know mm-hmm. anytime the stuffed animal's up front, baby's in the back. And then yeah. another one that maybe people don't think about but it really breaks our heart because it could, could have saved hundreds and hundreds of lives is to have a really good um, communication with your daycare provider and say if my baby doesn't show up by x time you know here is every number possible to get a hold of me so we can ensure the safety of the baby um, I'll call you if the baby's not going to come but if you don't have my baby by this time, here are all the emergency numbers. Because that one phone call in so many of these cases would have saved that baby's life. They, you know, they wouldn't know that they didn't make the drop off. So work with your child care provider to make sure you have that type of plan in place. And that phone call could save a life.
0: When you really think to the neuroscience of it all, it's... It's quite amazing. I um, actually initially wanted to go into neuropsychology. So the way you approach this book has all it 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 blew my mind. Um, and with neuroscience and the case studies in the book, it points to slowing down and unlocking hidden creativity and productivity. Why is this, and what are some examples?
3: Yeah, I think I think we intuitively know this. Um, you know, when you think about when our best ideas are. It's not when we're stressed out and maxed out. It's you know when we're you know, taking a shower and for some magical reason the kids don't knock on the door. You know, or it's if we go for a walk or we go for a hike or have time away from all the stress. That that's when we have our best and most creative ideas. And which as a parent can be so hard to find those those micro moments to even be able to get away. So when we do slow down and when we start to pace our families and pace that time away, we find that our brains actually get unlocked in a new way. So. We know from the science that our brains won't do new things or come up with new things if it feels scared. And so here's a story from my life. So in 2001, I was in Nepal with my friend Todd, we're at the edge of the Chitwan jungle, and we're about to go into the jungle, and our guide says to us, if we get chased by a wild rhinoceros, climb a tree. And I did not ask any follow-up questions, such as, like, what kind of tree should we climb? Can we practice this? Um, right. How often does this happen? Is this, like, an annual thing, or is this every week? Uh, is there, like, a rhino in the you know, jungle that just chases people? Like, what, like, I should have asked for more information, but I didn't. So we enter the jungle. We're hiking for about an hour, and we come across a wild rhino. And I have a point-and-click film camera at the time, so I don't have a digital camera with the screen. So I take a picture, and I don't know if it's going to be blurry, so I take a step forward, I take another picture... I take another step forward, and at that point, the rhino charges our group, and I take off running, blatantly disregarding what the guide had said, because I know I can outrun my friend Todd for about maybe 200 yards. I'd been a sprinter in high school and could probably outrun him, uh, but after that, I mean, he was a distance runner. He's got me for miles after that. So he's right behind me, and then a Peace Corps volunteer is another human shield behind me, and then finally, we don't hear the rhino, and we go back. And our guide is in a tree. He shimmies down, yells at us, why didn't you run up a tree? So why didn't I run up a tree? Why didn't I try something new when I'm getting chased by a rhino? Because I'm not going to try something new Mm -hmm. and potentially fail and get killed by a rhino. Uh, So when we're stressed out and maxed out, (laughs) our brain is, if we're chased by the rhino, we don't try new things. And so over and over, we see this in the science. (laughs) Yeah, we go back to what we know instead of actually trying the new technique that could actually be better for us
0: hmm Mm-hmm. And you discuss further on in the book, um, the flow between slowing down and killing it and how this pushes back on hustle culture. How does that work? And also you met, you touched on your, um, slow down conference, and I'd love to learn a little bit more about that as well.
3: Yeah. So, so one thing that the research is showing us is that, um, We really can frame things differently in how we slow down. What we see on social media, especially on Instagram, is so much hustle culture. I'm working 80 hours this week. Like, go kill it, girl. Like, But we actually see that there's a break point where the number of hours you work doesn't equal the quality of work that you want. And so the more hours you're working, especially over about 35 hours in a week, we see that the percentage of actual quality work you're doing is going down. And so what I see mostly within that hustle culture is a whole bunch of ego. Um, It's using that as a branding tactic to say, I'm working so hard, but actually Mm -hmm. what's happening is you're working super inefficiently. And so when you're working all those hours, work will expand to the time given that's Parkinson's law. So we know that if we shorten our Mm. hours, say you have 20 things to do in a week and you only give yourself four days to do it, are you going to work on your best 15 things or are you going to work on your worst 15 things? Of course, you're going to work on the best 15 things. So say, you know, you have your office and you notice you're not taking out the trash, you're not vacuuming it anymore, and you're just working on these, these top things. Well, what's that tell you? It gives you information. Maybe you need to outsource the cleaning of your office. Maybe you need to have someone else do the coding on your website. Maybe you need someone else um, to check your email and tell you the top-level things that you need to be doing. And so it really reveals to you the very best use of your time. And when you're doing that week after week where you're only working on the best use of your time, that then allows you to move up faster instead of expending all of that energy on things that are fairly fruitless for your business or for your life.
0: Now, with the fairs of rejection, I know you've mentioned that there are two types of avoidance with these fares that can lead to inhibiting your ability to make friends. Can you elaborate on those two types of avoidance?
4: Yeah, so I think often the advice that we get for making friends is like, go to the meetup group, like, you know, go to X, Y, and Z event, like pursue your hobbies. And that is certainly true. Like putting yourself out there is really important. And when you do, you overcome something called overt avoidance, which is simply avoiding people, avoiding interactions, avoiding events, maybe because you feel anxious about them or fearful or or assume that it's not gonna be fun or people are gonna reject you. But that is an incomplete picture because when you show up at those events, it's not just that you have to show up, but you have to engage with people when you get there. And that means you have to overcome something called covert right. avoidance. If we are covertly avoiding, then we get to the... Um, I don't know, we get to the like mom's meetup group, right? But we're not really engaging with anyone. We're on our phones the whole time. You know, we're talking to that one person we might already know. We're not introducing ourselves. We're not saying, hey, you know, my name's Sasha. It's great to meet you. Tell me more about your experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, We are sort of like physically there, but mentally checked out when we're engaged in covert avoidance. And so to really make those friends, we need to overcome both of those things. We need to show up at events where we can connect with people. But once we show up, we need to start introducing ourselves. And, you know, people are often like, well, how do you introduce yourself? Like, that's so awkward. What do you say? And I say, here, a simple line, you don't even need to cite me for it that I will give to you. Hello, my name is Marissa. There you go. That's all you need. And then take it from
0: there. <laughs> right. Back to the basics. Exactly. <laughs> that's a great point that's a great point. And I know there is a lot of insecurities um that a lot of people have in the process. How can they overcome those insecurities? Even just sometimes I know for some people it's just hard to be the first to say hello or just make that first move.
4: Yeah, of course. And you know, I understand this. It's like Human beings are the things we need the most, but also the absolute most petrifying thing for us. So I think we're caught in this like catch 22, like, oh, I'm so afraid, but also I need you. (laughs) Um, So it feels uncomfortable and it feels scary (laughs) to put yourself out there. Certainly. Right. But it really starts with your internal dialogue. Like, how do you talk to yourself around meeting new people? Are you thinking I'm coming off as weird? I'm coming off as awkward. They're not going to want to talk to me. Right. Right. And so if you can sort of change your internal dialogue to be, I would probably enjoy this interaction. So will they. I'm going to assume they want to interact with me. I'm going to assume we're going to like each other. I'm going to remember, you know, thinking about your strengths that you have in socializing. So for me, I know that, like, I can be insightful, right? And so when I'm feeling nervous, I'll just remind myself, oh, I'm insightful. I bring valuable things to this conversation because I'm very insightful. And so it takes almost, there's this term called pro it's the opposite of paranoia. It's instead of assuming people are out to get you, mm. assume people assuming people are out to love you, and you're and out to um, have your best interest in wow. heart. And and that's the sort of wavelength we need to be on to get over some of our insecurities and put ourselves out there.
0: What was the experience of going through a ado- first of all the actual adoption experience? Because a lot of people speak about um, the adoptive process just being so you know it's just so many details and it being a right. long waiting process how was right. your experience and how how did that impact you know you going into show hope and offering the resources that right. you do offer
5: yeah. So for me personally, you know, when an 11 year old <laughs> who was my oldest child, well, first of all, I'd like to say that that 11 year old is now the 35 year old executive director of Show Hope. So her yes, story was marked deeply by by this, this work. Um, I, you know, Stephen and I back then in 1997 really wanted to at least model to our children that we were going to pray about what she felt God had put on her heart for a family. We just didn't want to, you know, Steve wanted to say, that's a great idea for your family someday when you grow up, but yet really take that seriously. And so I was, um I think secretly, Stephen thought it was a great idea for our family. I think me as the mom, the one who was kind of, you know, the mothering instinct and bringing a child into the, the into the mm-hmm. home, I felt this heaviness, right? I did I was the last hold I was the one with all the doubts, all the fears can I love a child like, you know, this is my own. We did have other children. We weren't adopting out of a out of a, a, a home where we weren't able to have children. We had three, I call them natural, and my adopted children supernatural because right. God just put this amazing, you know, family together. I was scared. I was very, very fearful that um, Shoei wouldn't receive the same kind of love that I was able to express to the children who were naturally born to me. I think in my particular story, God just did a radical movement. When I met Shoei, it was kind of like, hello, do you not get it now? I love you just the way that you immediately loved Shoei, just because you exist, not for any other reason. I know that's that's not everybody's experience, right? Mm -hmm. There's different, you know, people struggle people embrace people. It's, it's all, you know, everybody's walking in this journey. You know, sometimes it takes families longer than others to kind of become Mm -hmm. where they feel whole and, you know, integrated. I think that's part of the reason, again, what we didn't know then, all we knew was Hey, this is a pretty amazing experience for us. We call it gloriously hard, right? It's Mm -hmm. glorious, but there are some really hard pieces to it. I love that. How can we we partner well and go deeper with families to offer whatever we can to go? It's okay to feel this way. It's okay to feel that way. It's okay. You might feel this way. And then what are those kind of like peeling it back like an onion? What are those places we can step into to offer those resources? took us a little while to kind of move towards that pre and post adoptive Mm -hmm. piece where You know, we can offer some practical tools and some practical guidance to families who are struggling in the journey or not struggling. It's a great resource for if you're thinking about adoption. You know, I wish we would have had some of the tools before we ever, you know, adopted that, like the conference can offer. And so, Stephen and I just like to be um, not idle, to be very aware that there's always another place you can step. While it might not be perfect, we just kind of see that need where, hey, you know what, this can be really isolating or be feeling really lonely because they felt this way about their adoption. What can we offer as a resource to kind of help move them through this really fearful part or the scared part or this hopeless part? Some people feel mm-hmm. so hopeless once they get into the journey of adoption. We, you know, it doesn't stop the day that the adoption's complete. You know, there's ongoing need, there's ongoing resources that become very um, like a lifeline to these families. And so if we can continue to just kind of keep our eyes and our ears open, we kind of like to step into those those places. And for me, that was super um, important because I was so fearful and 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 yet felt like for me, God was moving us toward adoption. I don't think everybody's called to adopt, but I do feel like everybody's called to do something. You know, mm-hmm. God, you know, asks us to care for widows and orphans. So what can we do, you know, stepping into those areas.
0: And I know we're, we're kind of bouncing back and forth here between gut and inflammation, gut and inflammation. But what are the five triggers of inflammation? Can you yes. list those off
6: for us? Yes. And that's how I I always I always approach an illness, whether it's asthma, eczema, mm-hmm. recurrent ear infections, a- anything is we we go, okay, we've got five main triggers of inflammation first we've got our genetics right and it's the way that our genet we all have a certain genetic predisposition for certain things Mm -hmm. and it's a way that our genetics interact with these five triggers and the triggers are food environmental allergies environmental toxins infectious diseases and stress stress can be physical it can be emotional and it's we really we really want to take a a look at the whole piece of the puzzle and it because we can have this is one of the examples I always use is if we have say we have parents and maybe one of them travels during the week and so there's you know maybe mom is ends up as, as she's working at home she's handling everything maybe mom is working also so she's handling her own job she's running mm-hmm. the household and then dad comes home on the weekends and maybe there is a lot of stress between parents and they think, well, we keep it hidden. We don't argue in front of the kids. Well, kids will resonate, but if mom's system is in fight or flight all during the week, Mm -hmm. those, the kids are going to be, they tune their, their systems are going to attune to the predominant adult in the household and that's going to keep them in fight or flight so that's going that's going to be a hindrance on the immune system and it's so whether it's i just i use that example because stress is stress can do as much as any infectious illness any bacteria it's stress can play a big role on the body and we could be doing perfect nutrition, perfect supplements. But if we're not looking at all the different pieces of the puzzle, Mm -hmm. we're only going to get so much improvement. And it's, we can never be perfect in any one of those five categories, right? We'll never have a perfect diet and we'll, you know, we'll never have every single tool in our toolbox to manage stress that we need to. But as long as we're doing the best we can in each of those categories, if we can take these little decreases in each of the categories, that's where we start to see the magic happen. And that's where we start to really see the big shifts that are sustained, right? Mm -hmm. It's one thing to have an improvement, but then, you know, a couple months down the line, then all of the things come back, Mm -hmm. all of the symptoms come back. We want that good sustained resolution or improvement.
0: Are there names for these, these specific methods
7: well, so um, diversified uh, mm-hmm. is the most commonly used term, and that's the one where everything is done pretty much by hand. Mm-hmm. Um, the pediatric version of it, it's, there's, um, there's, other, uh, there's a Logan mm-hmm. technique, which is a, a very specific technique um, that uses um, your thumb, actually, on different areas of the spine. Hmm. Uh, there is uh, Thompson technique, and that's with the drops, the table that hmm. makes that little bit of a noise. Um, and then there's a specific technique that we have training and that I have training, it's called the Webster technique. And then what that is used to do, it's a way to analyze the the low back and the pelvis uh, in and around and, and after pregnancy. And what 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 that helps us to understand is where in that area of the body our joints not working properly, and that's causing biomechanical neurological stress, in a, in, especially in the pregnancy situation. And we use that technique to help us uh, uh, analyze that and then to how to apply the adjustment to correct uh, that biomechanical neurological input deficit to allow the body to work better. And yeah. that, that specific technique is, is something that is um, continually researched. It's been developed for over 30 years and it has helped millions of pregnant women uh, have a better outcomes with their pregnancy during pregnancy, leading up to and including labor and delivery. And it's really remarkable how the body responds when we use that technique.
8: And a lot of part-time people say, you know, can you, um, will you be replacing my husband in that birthing space? And mm. I say, absolutely not. We're not replacing your husband. You have that intimacy of birth or you have that intimacy of, you know, the relationship you came to, you know, conceive your baby. We have an intimacy with that birthing process. We're very familiar with it. We um, feel very comfortable with it. So we bring that into that space. So we can then say to husband, yes, this is really normal. a lot of times we'll go into the birth room. The first thing we'll do is, if we meet you at the hospital, say, um, make sure dad is hydrated. Make sure he's had something to eat. If he's sleepy and looking like really tired, you've been up all night with dad's permission I'll say hey is it okay if you know dad gets to sleep and then I can take care of mom for a while and then he can refuel we get his energy together and then be able to support you when you really need it so I think that that's important to know that you know you're the bride he's the bridegroom and we're the bridesmaids we don't take center stage in any of this this is your right. day we want to make you guys look fabulous right just a a helping hand right yeah absolutely I think one thing too is um thing to ask about doulas and misconception is you know people say ask your doula what her philosophy is and I really don't like that question because to me it's not important what you want so if you decide I always ask the the family, what sort of birth do you want? Do you want a natural birth? Do you want an epidural birth? Do you want what is your what is your plan? What is your goal for this birth? If things change along the way, maybe your family says, I really want to have a natural birth, but at some point they decide they want to have pain management. There should be no choice, there should be no issue from the doula. We are there as Switzerland. We want to support you whatever you want. So if you change your mind in your birthing time, that's great. We, you know, that's a great choice you're making right now. So, we want to stand by your decisions in everything and our philosophy does not doesn't matter. It's what you want.
0: But I checked out your website and I saw that it states that unintentional injuries remain a crucial public health concern as they persist as the leading cause of morbidity and mortality in children. Um, It also states that more than 9.2 million children are treated in emergency departments for non-fatal injuries. And sadly, accidents and injuries claim the lives of 12,000 children and adolescents each year. Those numbers are staggering. Um, in your opinion, what do you think is the biggest contributing factor to these numbers? Is it that products products are just inherently dangerous? Is it a lack of parental education? What do you think exactly is leading to those numbers?
9: Well, the, those numbers, Sasha, are really why we decided to um, launch Charlie's House. And our mission is to prevent accidents and injuries to children in and around the home. It's not exclusive to tip overs. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it's any type of accident that can be prevented, uh, Charlie's accident could have been prevented had I educated myself. Um, and uh, I did not know about furniture tip overs prior to 2007. I've become rather involved in it now, but, uh, but I didn't know about it. I had never heard of that type of accident happening before, but had I, I had a resource like Charlie's house. Um, I, I uh, you know, I should have as a uh, young parent taken the time to, uh, to go through my house and ensure that uh, all the safety preventative measures had been taken. So it it is a parent education, um, um, aspect. It's a parent action aspect, uh, because no one thinks that this type of accident is going to happen to them. Um, you, you asked if products were inherently dangerous. And I, and I would certainly say that, uh, consumers, um, do have the incorrect perception that all products in their home have been vetted properly for safety measures. Mm-hmm. Um, that that sometimes is true and sometimes it's not. Um, um, and in, in this particular case, uh, they had not had proper standards for for furniture tip over. Um, but but you know as consumers, it's our job to educate ourselves and um, stay aware through, podcasts like this one, um, through resources like Charlie's house and other safety resources. Um, it, it is your job as a parent to, to ensure that, that, uh, you're doing everything you can to prevent those accidents. And I would last qualify it by saying accidents do happen. And, um, that's why they're accidents. Right. But as a parent, um, I certainly wish I would have taken more action, um, to ensure that, that, that the preventable accidents within my own home um, that I would have taken measures to ensure that those did not happen.
0: Let's talk about family and getting them on board. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that that is something that I'm sure can help to cut down on time. If everyone is kind of working towards a common goal, Um, how do we get them on board with decluttering?
10: That's a loaded question, but I'm, I'm going <laughs> to do the best I can. Before I'm here that, for it. <laughs> I want to share one quick thing. So you, um, you talked about time, right? And that's, that's a common you know, reason. And this was for me too, like why I just that was always my thing. I don't have enough time to declutter. Yes. But decluttering pays dividends in the long run. And what I mean by that, are there actual studies that show simply by decluttering your home, you can save up to 40% of time doing household chores. And so literally that's, I mean, for a lot of us, maybe like, I would say on average two hours a week is usually what I stick to. Like two hours a week, easy, is what I've saved by putting 10 minutes in today, 20 minutes in yesterday, 30 minutes last week. And so it, it pays, it gives you time down the road and it continues to pay off. So that can be a really helpful thing to help people get started, is knowing that this isn't all for nothing. Uh, this is this is going to pay you off in the long haul. So uh, as far as getting family on board with oh and one other thing I did want to mention really quick because you talked about mm-hmm. dishes. So one thing I want to give help hopefully help your audience on and give them a definition of is the difference between clutter and expected mess. So mm. clutter, as we talked about earlier, disorganized excess stuff that is simply doesn't belong, right? Expected mess are more things and mess that happens from living life, right? Dirty dishes on the counter, laundry to be done, socks on the floor, toys on the floor. Now, normally without clutter, if you don't have clutter to deal with, expected mess is maybe annoying, yeah, (laughs) but it's nothing to fret over because, you know, it takes me now five minutes to help pick up the toys and most of the time the kids do it or 30 Mm -hmm. seconds depending on what's out or... You know, everything, expected mass in a nutshell should be fairly simple to handle. Mm-hmm. The issue comes up when we have clutter on top of that. Like I talked Roll about down, having right. to clear off the countertops just so I could cook dinner right. and kind of create that expected mass. Mm-hmm. That made, Clutter makes expected mass a million times harder and a million times longer to handle mm-hmm. and a million times more frustrating to handle because you're constantly working through and around clutter. Mm-hmm. So that, when I understood that too super helpful it's like again that expected mess is normal this is why homes are designed to be messy play is messy connection and doing stuff with their kids like pillows on the floor from a pillow flight right mm-hmm. but the clutter is the issue so i just wanted mm-hmm. to give some clarity to those and like dirty dishes typically not clutter if you have 100 plates that are on your counter yeah <laughs> i would say cut down on some of your plates or your mugs or, you know, the stuff that's just excess and it'll become Mm -hmm. easier to handle. All right. Now I think I can go into the (laughs) near question.
0: I love that you're (laughs) approaching all of this in a organized, like declutter (laughs) expert like way. So this is great.
10: (laughs) Oh, good. So number one, remember, and I mentioned this earlier, remember you're a, you're a team drop the mom versus everyone narrative, Mm -hmm. drop the, it's all my way or the highway, right? Mm -hmm. You're all on the same team and you give everyone time to play on the field, right? You don't like, my son is six. He's not a great folder. Like I have yet. I have him practice Mm -hmm. helping me fold dish towels and Mm -hmm. bath towels and his clothes. Yes. It takes 30 seconds longer because I'm like, Oh, you know, showing him how to do it. Mm-hmm. But now he's at a point where he does it. And I've let go of the perfection. I don't mm-hmm. care if he doesn't fold them perfectly because this is a lifelong skill he's forming right. at six years old, mm-hmm. right? I'm giving him opportunity to practice versus me going, and this is what I used to do, giving a big, big deep sigh. <sighs> it's just easier if I do it. Forget it. It's just mm-hmm. easier if I do it, right? Mm-hmm. So allow them to help. Allow them to learn and practice It's just like when my husband is the king of this, I'll be loading the dishwasher and he'll like critique me. I'll be like, you didn't, you you shouldn't, you should, you should move things around. You can fit more in there. He's telling me I'm not (laughs) loading the dishwasher, right? And I'm looking at him like, does it really matter? There's space Mm -hmm. for every, there's going to be space for everything, Mm -hmm. but he's just one of the one of those people that likes like all the big plates here or the small plates here. Right. And I'm like, That's listen,
0: thing, right? do you <laughs> want to
10: do it? Cause I will gladly step away. <laughs> right. It makes me not feel good to get, you know, told that and mm-hmm. same, same for our partners, same for her kids, like mm-hmm. just invite them to help. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of a couple answers, but, um, make it easy for them to do what you want them to do. Mm-hmm you want them to hang their coats? Like put a le- put a hook at like three feet high because that's how tall my little guys are. Yes. <laughs> um. Yes. You know, if there's not space for them to put their shoes away, make space. Put some of the extra shoes in your closets. Get them out of the entryway. And I think remembering to focus on the positive, which. I think for a lot of us can be difficult. It's easy to be like, oh, you didn't put your shoes where they're supposed to go. Oh, mm-hmm. why is your backpack on the kitchen table again? I told you yesterday where it goes. I shouldn't have to tell you every day, right? Mm-hmm. But be like, hey. So, what I do if my sons don't put their shoes away is I'll just go, instead of being getting upset and letting it trigger me, I'll go, hey, River, I noticed your shoes are in the living room. Mm-hmm. So that prompts him to put them away. Wow. And mm-hmm. he'll, ninety nine percent of the time, he'll be like, "Oh yeah, go put them away." So that so I, there's no high emotions, there's no annoyance. Mm-hmm. No one's perfect. Sasha, I forget to put my shoes where they go. Mm-hmm. So big mm-hmm. deal, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. No one's perfect, and so by see, simply saying a phrase like that, or I'll say to my husband, "Hey, I noticed you left your wallet on the counter." And then he'll go put his wallet away. <laughs> right.
11: That'll it's just so much better
10: because I used to just uh, let it trigger me and make me angry. Um, yes. But then, as you know, on the other side of things, focusing on the positive. Hey, hey, River, I saw you put your shoes away when you got home from school. That is so helpful. That mm-hmm. means that means more time to play later instead of like cleaning up after ourselves. What do you want to mm-hmm. do tonight? You want to do Legos or do you want to build blocks? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, telling my husband, hey, I noticed you put your keys. That's mm-hmm. really helpful for me because when I'm cooking right? That just makes it easier. So thank you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So focusing on the positives and trying to not, you know, get so triggered or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when when they mess up, Mm -hmm. because we need to give themselves grace and compassion, just like we do ourselves.
0: In one of your presentations, I saw that you mentioned that the average American ingests about one to two milligrams of carotenoids. That is very interesting to me. Can are there foods that you prov- that provide the nutrients and vitamins that should be encouraged in diets to help maintain children's eyesight? What foods do you typically um, do you typically encourage mm-hmm. to help with eye health?
12: Um, carotenoids are basically all of the phytochemicals in nature. Right, um, we need these these antioxidants and these, they're they are really powerful things that we have to ingest. We don't make them on our own mm-hmm. in order to live and in order to not rot, basically. Mm. There's specific carotenoids that are inherently absorbed by the eye, okay? And lutein and zeaxanthin are the most paramount of those. Unfortunately, due to lifestyle changes and food changes, right, the way that we eat, our ingestion has gone down. Um, And this can be mainly attributed to the fact that we don't eat enough fruits and vegetables, simplistically Mm -hmm. speaking. Um, One of my biggest concerns with children, and I've actually done a few lectures and um, pod, not podcasts, but presentations with Child, uh, ch- uh, children's nutritionists and things like that that really put a spotlight on a big problem where mm. kids are not actually eating well. So I'm sure there's moms out there that surprise, they're not surprised by this. And the problem is, is when these eyes age, are we starting them on the right foot? How mm. can we protect the vision as you know, as the child develops. And lutein and zeaxanthin, which are the best type of carotenoids for the eyes, found in green leafy vegetables as the highest percentage. So your spinaches, your kales, um, bell peppers, yellow, certain types of corn, squashes, as well as the yellow of a yolk of an egg, Okay, that yellow color is the color that we want, yellow, orange, goes into the eye and directly plants itself in parts of the eye, especially something called the macula. The macula is a teeny tiny spot in the eye, in the retina, that attributes to over 90% of your vision. And we have to replenish that area of the eye with these high level Antioxidants mm-hmm. and kids who are being exposed to higher amounts of what do we call them reactive oxygen uh, oxidative or oxygen species? So mm-hmm. oxidation, okay, which is unfortunately more apparent nowadays than maybe a hundred years ago. We want to replenish them with these higher level antioxidants more consistently. And the dietary intake is really important. This also parallels um, fiber intake because a lot of these vegetables are high in fiber as well. We have a poor amount of fiber in our country. Um, The problem with ocular nutrition Is the problem with nutrition, period.
0: Are there, this is, we can go into a whole episode on this, I know, but as far as products go, is there anything we should be looking out for, any tips or considerations that you can put out there as far as general research on products for babies and where they're coming from?
13: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's really hard to generalize um, because really when you look at you know, making non-toxic product choices, it's best to separate things by product type or material type. Um, So Mm -hmm. any type of baby product that you're looking for, honestly, I recommend go to gentlenursery.com and type that in the search box because I've laid it out for you. Like these are the, these are the ingredients to avoid. This is what to look for. And these are the products that I recommend, but like at a general level. Okay. When you're talking about mattresses, for example, Um, Your baby's crib mattress is one of the most important, or I would say the most important item to have non-toxic in your nursery because your baby spends thousands and thousands of hours sleeping in their first year of life. And the materials in your Mm -hmm. baby's crib mattress can off-gas into their breathing zone. So that's no good. You definitely wanna avoid anything um, in your baby's crib mattress along the lines of um, synthetic fabrics, polyester, even things labeled Mm -hmm. as eucalyptus. Um, Vinyl waterproofing is a really big one because that's a just a big off-gasser. Mm-hmm. Flame retardant chemicals. Um, you wanna look for mattresses that are naturally flame resistant using ingredients, or using uh, materials like wool. Um, avoid polyurethane foam. Whenever possible in life, I would say avoid polyurethane foam, and that includes soy and vegetable foam. Um, and ideally, when it comes to mattresses, you wanna avoid products that are made in China. There's so many inexpensive crib mattresses mm-hmm. out there and they look great, but truthfully, there's a ton and a ton of um, greenwashing in the mattress industry. So you wanna look for products that are made with all natural materials, inside and out, top to bottom. Um, look for GOTS certification and GALL certification if it includes latex. But as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. your crib mattress is where the, you know, the budget should go. Do not cut corners on the crib mattress. Mm-hmm. Then other product categories like furniture. You want to look out for um, things that are made with like um, engineered wood, MDF, um, plywood. You want to look for furniture that is unfinished or painted using water-based, no VOC paints. Bonus if the company can give you any kind of heavy metal certification or testing. Um, When it comes to nursery furniture, I think it's also very important to buy that non-toxic. So I also try to look for furniture that is solid wood and preferably green guard certified, because then, you know, at least it's tested for several thousands of emission levels, not tested for everything. Green guard certification is not a perfect certification, but it is helpful. Um, So when it comes to furniture, look Mm -hmm. for that. You want to make sure that it doesn't use cheap glues. Uh, It has to use non-toxic glues, should ideally be made with solid wood throughout. Anytime you see panels MDF and things like that, um, then it can be off-gassing chemicals, it can be off-gassing formaldehyde and really just harsh toxic VOCs that are going to, you know, just be disruptive to your baby and their their well-being. Um, When it comes to clothing and fabric, again, I think it's really important to stick with um, natural fibers as much as possible, cotton as much as you can, Um, with baby care products, that's where you get into the whole, you know, kind of like the the beauty industry's list of ingredients to avoid parabens, phthalates, fragrance, mm-hmm. just avoid anything that has the word fragrance or perfume slash parfum yes. on it, because that is a code word for up to hundreds of other chemicals that don't have to be disclosed. When it comes mm-hmm. to baby care products, you want simple, clean, organic, with as few ingredients as possible. Um, And avoid plastics as much as you can. That includes like baby bottles, um, baby toys, anything that they put in their mouth. And they will put those toys in their mouth. Um, Pacifiers. Mm -hmm. Just basically choose natural, gentle products whenever you can made with, you know, natural ingredients and materials. Sometimes silicone Mm -hmm. is okay. Sometimes silicone is unavoidable. But really avoid plastics as much as you can when you're preparing for your baby, when you're shopping for your baby especially vinyl, because vinyl is known Mm -hmm. as the most toxic plastic out there, and it is just ruthless as far as off-gassing goes.
0: Well, cyber civics, I feel, is something that um, is going to be very refreshing for parents. You know, you hear about all these wonderful opportunities um, from the tech perspective, but Mm -hmm. as a parent, you also know that Too much tech is not a good thing. Can we get started with what the good, let's start with the good, right? Let's start with what are the good opportunities that the digital world affords our children? And then we can switch gears with the not so good things.
14: Okay. Well, like you, I'd love to start with the good. And I think the pandemic has taught us there's so many wonderful things about technology um, mm-hmm. It's allowed our kids to get educated. <laughs> Where would we be right. without technology the last two years? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. School work online, which is wonderful. And also um, research has shown that kids turn to technology, especially during the pandemic, to connect with friends and family. Otherwise mm-hmm. they wouldn't be able to. And also to escape from a very anxiety-filled world. Mm-hmm. So you know, our research shows that kids are using gaming and social media to kind of take a break from stuff that they find to be super stressful mm-hmm. so we're seeing some pluses with technology and again you know i'm talking more or less about older kids i'm not talking about our little ones that really shouldn't be using a lot of technology but for the as kids get older there's definitely benefits for
0: them mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's inevitable, like you mentioned with the pandemic, it's, it's been such a great resource for all Mm -hmm. of us. It's allowed Mm -hmm. some parents to work from home. Mm -hmm. And it's like you said, it's, it's allowed children to continue to learn and keep up to some capacity with, you know, their curriculum, or whatnot, so they don't fall too far behind, um, or just stay on par rather. Mm -hmm. But I think there's always that tipping point. There's that moment or the, the line that you cross with the amount of tech that's available and the amount of different devices that are available to our children or that we might make available to our children. There's that tipping point where a parent begins to think, is this too much? Right. And what will, if any, what will the repercussions be? Right in your book, you mentioned that smartphones have changed, has changed childhood. Can mm-hmm. you break that down for us?
14: Yeah. So, you know, I talk about it, in my book, just in terms of, if you know, it's changed everything about childhood because kids are getting younger and younger and they're going to their phones before they go to in-person and all that. Mm-hmm. And parents generally, when I talk to them, they're so worried about screen time. And mm-hmm. so one thing I've really shifted since I've written the book is to stop thinking so much about time, but to think more about content and to ask mm-hmm. yourselves, what are our kids doing online? Because mm-hmm. time is really an ineffective measure right now because we don't know if they need them to do school work and you know, all that. And it's more important to look at what they're doing online and to see how old your children are. You know, mm-hmm. What concerns me is real young kids being exposed to content that is way over their heads and just inappropriate for their developmental stage.
3: Mm-hmm. So I
14: think for parents to not freak out about the time. But do spend more time and to take a look at what your kids are doing with their phones. Because remember mm-hmm. that little phone connects them to the whole entire world and all the information in it.
0: Now let's go ahead and delve into some more fun stuff, the elderberry side. Can you get us started on what is elderberry? So
11: elderberry, and they're these beautiful little, little tiny little blackberries that, and and they actually grow here in North Carolina. There's a, an American variety that, um that they're they're actually all over North Carolina, and especially on they elderberry bushes love like ditches and railroad tracks and mm. growing under like by a bridge. They they like they they like kind of rough areas like that, but there are these little tiny blackberries. And with any, any food or like particular berries, like the darker they are, the more antioxidants. And these are black. The Mm -hmm. elderberries are these tiny little blackberry and they grow in these beautiful clusters. And before they become berries, they're flowers. And I'm sure you've heard like elderflower, like Mm -hmm. St. Germain, which is in a lot of wonderful cocktails are so good, but they're these beautiful little flowers, um, that grow first and then the flower falls off and it becomes the elderberry. Mm. Um, but so and the, the elder flowers are usually in bloom, like early summer. And you, when you know what to look for, we have a, a blog post on our, on our website. That's all about like, how to spot elderberries and elderflowers and what, what they look like. Cause they look a little bit like hydrangeas when the elderflowers are growing, but if like you would make hydrangeas miniature, like these little mm-hmm. tiny beautiful flowers, but they, um, so elderflowers and they grow, um, a lot in Europe also, that's where we get our berries from. Um, but they are just in, For hundreds of years, it has been known like how their health benefits. And Hippocrates, the father of medicine, actually talked about elderberries in his papers. He called them his medicine chest. Hmm. And But they're just very loaded with antioxidants, very antiviral. And there's uh, several clinical studies out there that show um, their benefits, and they, they, there's a study that shows that it reduces the symptoms and the duration of the flu. Mm-hmm. So they're very antiviral, and um, but they're if, if you have just an elderberry, like if you found an elderberry on a bush, it's very very bitter and tart, and um, and they, you're actually not supposed to eat them raw. Um, hmm. They need to be cooked. But, but um, it's a it's a very powerful natural remedy.
0: What would you say has kept you grounded? Um, a lot of times, you can, you know, many women, many moms can attest to this. It, you know, you you become a mom, and it's so easy to lose your identity. It's so easy mm-hmm. to to hold on to the world that you had um, or that you lived in, right? Prior to becoming a mother, you it's inevitable. Your world changes. You have just created a human being, right? And you have all the emotions, all the strings attached to go with that. How were you able to hold on to your passion for writing um, throughout this process of growing your
15: family? I, I mean, the identity shift is huge. I, uh, you know, after mm-hmm. I quit working, I got, I was, pr- I got pregnant with my son, our second child, um, pretty quickly after mm-hmm. that. And so I, I felt like it was writing definitely been on the back burner for a little while. Um, but so I think it was a lot of giving myself grace, honestly, like, like promising myself, okay, this is something that will be there. It was very hard watching people mm-hmm. that were my peers get senior editorial jobs and run publications and yeah. write books mm-hmm. and do all sorts of things. While mm-hmm. it felt like everyone was kind of leaving me behind, and I think that there was mm-hmm. there was a moment of having to maybe maybe not even a moment a process of having to let go a lot of of comparing myself mm-hmm. to other people of being like I have mm-hmm. friends everybody's path looks different everybody's career looks different everybody's barometer for success looks different there are people plenty Mm -hmm. of people I worked with whose barometer for success would have been a stable marriage and three kids and you know and and I have that and Mm -hmm. there are plenty of people whose barometer was running publications and they did that and so I think for me it was having to to first off let some of that go and then also keep doing it even if it was just Mm -hmm. a freelance article every once in a while i have great friends in the industry who were really wonderful about giving me assignments um not overwhelming me with assignments but also giving me enough that i felt like i was still working still involved in the industry um still Mm -hmm. doing things and then along that we Mm -hmm. can talk about the book but when the book started It became also something that I could work on at my own pace and Mm -hmm. know was going to happen and kind of have as a goal, even when some of the other goals and some of the other benchmarks for me had changed.
0: You touched on... um various misconceptions out there in the Montessori space. But we know overall for homeschooling, there's a lot of myths and misconceptions as a whole as far as homeschooling goes. For sure. Let's <laughs> let's delve into that a bit. Um I think this will be very insightful for anyone who who does have some myths myths and misconceptions on their end, or this will also be some great um What's the word I'm looking for? Some some great tools for some of our parents who do homeschool to have in their arsenal. Can you get us started on what are, what are some of those myths and misconceptions out there? You,
16: you got it. Yeah. So just off the top of my head, the first thing that comes to mind is that most brand new homeschoolers try to replicate a classroom environment at home. Mm. And to some extent, this this can work to some extent, like as in children need a space to do their work. Yes. Children need some art supplies. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's great to have some math manipulatives around so children can mm-hmm. do their math. Yes. All of that is great. But um, when children are at home, they are mm-hmm. relaxed uh, or they want to be relaxed. They have a relationship with you and their other family members. They don't want to be, quote unquote, at school <laughs> while they're at home. Um you know, and so I, I think a lot of new homeschoolers come into homeschooling thinking, okay, I have to be the teacher. And that means I have to do this whole extra job. I've got to pre-plan, like micromanage and, uh, document and outline every single minute of my child's day so that I know that they're receiving a quality education. Mm-hmm. And that alone makes parents feel super overwhelmed. And it is a path to, failure. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. and so I, I, you know, I, I see this myth, um, just, just, in the, the conversations that I have with parents over and over, even parents that come to Montessori, which is a very follow the child and relaxed type of approach of education. But um, there's some there's something about the word school or, you know, homeschooling. It means like you're you've got to go the extra mile and you've got to, um, you know, have your child sitting at their desk doing all of this mounds of work, you know, or mm-hmm. you're not doing your job. And uh, the truth is that most homeschoolers don't homeschool. All day. It just doesn't take that long <laughs> mm-hmm. to educate your child or to do the kind of direct teaching that they need. So mm-hmm. if you think of a child in school for like seven, seven and a half hours during the day, not including after school programs, um, you're thinking, oh, that child must be in like top brain activity learning for seven hours a day. Right. But that that is not true. There's so much downtime that happens naturally at school that parents aren't aware of. And it's mm-hmm. not just the transitions, you know, between like now we're going to go to the water fountain or now we're going to, uh, you know, we're going to go to lunch. Um, it is like actually happening in the classroom. The teacher does not stand in front of the classroom and, uh, and, and talk to students all day, or even if they were, that wouldn't be healthy for them, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there is place for you to be inside this homeschool environment and to be just as you are, the parent that you already are. You and your child are just walking this education path together. You're going to be learning together, but you don't need to be so uptight about it. It doesn't have to be like a school. Mm-hmm. It can be an alternative form of education. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's probably the biggest one is it just doesn't take as much time as people Mm -hmm. think it needs to take. And people always ask me, okay, Aubrey, exactly how much time does it take to (laughs) homeschool? If you were going to think about how much actual instruction should I be giving my child? I would Mm -hmm. say if you have a preschooler, you're really talking about just like maybe... Thirty minutes to an hour of direct Mm. instruction a day, you know, and that Mm -hmm. would include like reading stories to your child, and uh, you know, then you have another little transition time, and maybe you give Mm. a very small lesson to your child, but mostly your child is engaged in unstructured playtime because that is what is developmentally appropriate at that age. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have a child who is older, um, we're talking like lower elementary you're learning like your actual crunch instructional time might be more like an hour and a half to three hours a day that's totally manageable for most parents at home even even working part-time like you can Mm -hmm. squeeze it in around other things and it's very very doable so that that would be probably the number one thing that is on my mind right now
0: I just thought this would be a wonderful topic to bring to our momologists. So we are going to be speaking and going in depth today about attention and executive functioning. So let's get started with the difference between the two. Can you please break that down for us?
17: Yeah. Um, And, you know, I love what you said and thank you. And and, uh, I love that your moms are just like the moms who follow me and they, They want to know. And I love Google. I love being a Google MD and power (laughs) to you get the information because you are the CEO. So, you know, I'm not opposed to medication, but I am 100 percent of the time opposed to medication being the first option and only option presented to families. Mm -hmm. We are getting more mental illnesses and struggles. This is not making things better as medication usage is rising we are dramatically increasing mental health issues across the globe. So that is really important. I don't want you to feel like we're judging you. You're going to do the best thing you can. I want this conversation to just be like a holy cow kind of moment where you're thinking and then you're going to get mad that nobody told you about this. And right. so don't get mad. And take action in one small action. So What is the difference between attention and executive functioning? So attention is the brain's ability to alert, to shift and be like, oh, somebody's calling my name. Oh, okay. And executive functioning is different. It is the brain's ability to plan for and prioritize a future action. So so alert, okay, somebody's calling my name. executive functioning is my mom is calling my name. She's asking me to pick up my laundry. Mm
5: -hmm.
17: How do I do that? What is the end result? Mm -hmm. Those are two different skills. And everybody with ADHD has executive functioning problems, Sasha, not everybody with executive functioning problems have ADHD. Mm-hmm. Executive functioning problems could occur on its own without a clinical diagnosis. It also can be a part of and is almost always a part of things like anxiety, mm-hmm. depression, OCD, autism, other clinical issues.
0: hmm. Okay. And then when you speak about executive function versus ADHD, because I know when you start to put labels on things, it can get very confusing. What is the defining difference between those two?
17: Yeah, I mean, ADHD is a clinical diagnosis, right? So your um, child or yourself before the age of 12 had issues with um, distractibility and focus, uh, maybe impulse control or what I like to call putting the brakes on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, th- those difficulties are significantly impacting them in some way, shape or form in their life, right? Mm-hmm. So you, uh, you know, you can be a little inattentive, but it's not significantly impacting you. Mm-hmm. But you can also be a little inattentive and have very serious impact where you're having a hard time, you know, getting your schoolwork done. Um, and, and I also want to say that many, many women right now, are um, experiencing burnout and overwhelm, mm-hmm. a lot of stuff related to the pandemic, because many moms are, had a double work. They were teachers and doing a job, mm-hmm. and a sous chef and mm-hmm. a housekeeper.
0: Yes, yes.
17: <laughs> um, all at once. And uh, it's very overwhelming. So they might be experiencing attention and executive functioning problems due to burnout, due to mm-hmm. adrenal physical burnout and unless you have a clinical history of ADHD difficulties focusing when it just shows up something else is driving it a root cause so mm. ADHD is a clinical disorder it's a you know a neurodevelopmental disorder it starts in childhood you're not going to just spring it up at a different point where executive functioning there there is executive functioning dysfunction. This is not in what we, in our fancy words in mental health, diagnostic and statistical manual. So DSM. Mm-hmm. we use this book. To diagnose. It is not an official diagnosis in there, but it is a recognized diagnosis in the mental health word, world. And it just captures difficulties. So it's difficulties with starting a task, mm-hmm. com- um, staying on task, completing a task. You have those difficulties with prioritizing and planning. And that is the crux, Sasha, of mm-hmm. executive functioning. Mm-hmm. You don't know how to think in the future. You mm. are barely connecting in the moment, Right. Um, and working memory difficulties—a whole other list of things that really impact your ability to get stuff done. Mm-hmm. I mean, without often moms, you know, being the nag patrol because we have no other choice because we need our kids to turn their homework in or not grow mold in their room or their floor. Or
14: right. oh my word, you know,
17: right. <laughs> So um, and and you know it's very frustrating to have a child with executive functioning di- you know difficulties because you're often stuck in a yelling cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, these are often in both cases, the ADHD and executive functioning, often brighter than average kids. Mm-hmm. So you see the intelligence and you think this little bugger is doing this on purpose, mm-hmm. right? And I promise you, they're not. They just don't have that internal dialogue, that metacognition. So Sasha and I were able to talk for a long time before. We're women that get stuff done, right? Yes,
0: we totally are.
17: i Sasha has great, you already have three steps ahead. You're already, you're a planner. Mm, Oh, for
0: sure. Type A all the way.
17: Right. And it's not just type A. You think in visual images at the end. Mm -hmm. So we were Mm -hmm. talking about um, your your podcast. I'm Mm -hmm. relaunching my podcast, changing the name to It's Going to Be Okay," Mm -hmm. And I've already got a vision of what that end product looks like.
14: Right.
8: And
17: then I know the steps to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Somebody with executive functioning, you say clean the room. And you're like, how do they not know how to clean the room? Mm
5: -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. because
17: they don't see the end result. They don't see it clean. They don't know what that looks like. And you're like, you know, if you're listening, you're thinking, well, I've shown them 14 times. Well, they haven't internalized it. Mm-hmm. Then they don't know how to make those steps happen.
0: Well, that wraps up our season one recap. We're already hard at work and producing season two. And I cannot wait to continue sharing what I'm learning with all my fellow momologists. If any of the clips from this episode piqued your interest, you can check out the full episodes and their show notes on any podcast platform. We've also listed the titles and guests in the show notes for your reference. To stay up to date on what we have in the pipeline, be sure to follow us on our social media pages linked in the show notes and subscribe to our podcast. And most importantly, and as always, let's be the village and share this with two or more parents you feel will benefit from this information. Thank you so much for joining us for this last episode of Season 1 on The Momologist.